Well, greetings to everyone in the name of the Lord Jesus. If you'll turn with me to First uh, Kings, the book in the Old Testament, First Kings, chapter 16 and 17. And while you turn there, I'd just like to read another scripture by way of introduction to our text for today. And um, I don't know, I used to give titles to things that I wrote in notes I took. And I, I thought of one today that I thought was pretty creative. I'm going to call it Enter Stage Right. Now, for you thespian people, the people like to be on stage, you know, that means enter from the actor's right hand side. But today we're going to learn about Elijah. Never heard of him before. He just suddenly enters the stage of the history of Israel. And he didn't just come from the right hand side. This is an encouragement to us to learn like he did to enter that stage rightly, not wrongly. Uh, Because in Ephesians chapter two. Speaking of our salvation, we're mostly familiar, I think, with verses eight and nine that says, for it is by God's grace that you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God and not of works, lest anyone should boast. And that's true. There's not a single bit of works, anything good that we can do to try to offer to God to gain any kind of acceptance before him. Only by believing in Jesus Christ, the work that he did on the cross, can we be saved. That's what that verse says. But once we enter into this relationship with God, Verse 10 tells us we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That is true for anyone here today who is a believer in Jesus Christ. God has made you a masterpiece, a workmanship. He created you with the very specific details of your life, your hair color, your size, height, your strengths, your personality type, your weaknesses. All those things work into The individual person that you are and how God made you. And he wants us to discover what those gifts are and develop them so that as we discover them and enter the stage where God would have us to do those good works, we can enter stage right. That's kind of where that's coming from today. So how did Elijah do that? Let's turn. Did I say Isaiah earlier or Elijah? Okay. Just suddenly I thought I said the wrong name. So 1 Kings chapter 16, we're going to read the very ending of this chapter by way of the introduction to the time period. 1 Kings 16, we're going to start in verse 28 and we're going to read all the way through chapter 17 so that if I jump from verse to verse, there is a context with which to understand what I'm talking about because... Uh, There's so much here in this chapter, as there is in every chapter of the Bible, right? All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction and instruction and righteousness. Okay, first Kings 16, verse 28. So Omri rested with his fathers and was buried in Samaria. And then Ahab, his son, reigned in his place. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, became king over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. Now Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. And it came to pass, as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he took as his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and he went and served Baal and worshipped him. And then he set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal, which he had built in Samaria. And Ahab made a wooden image. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In his days, Heel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation with a 
Abiram, his firstborn, and with his youngest son, Segub, he set up its gates, according to the word of the Lord, which he had spoken through Joshua, the son of Nun. Chapter 17. And Elijah, the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years except by my word. Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Get away from here and turn eastward and hide by the brook Cherith, which flows into the Jordan. And it will be that you shall drink from the brook. And I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. For he went and stayed by the brook Cherith, which flows into the Jordan. And ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. And it happened after a while that the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. See, I have commanded a widow there to provide for you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, indeed, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Please, bring me a little water in a cup that I may drink. And as she was going to get it, he called to her and said, Please, bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. So she said, as the Lord your God lives, I do not have bread, only a handful of flour in a bin and a little oil in a jar. And see, I'm gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, do not fear. Go and do as you've said, but make me a small cake from it first and bring it to me. And afterward, make some for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, the bin of flour shall not be used up, nor shall the jar of oil run out, run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the earth. And so she went away and did according to the word of Elijah. And she and he and her household ate for many days. The bin of flour was not used up, nor did the jar of oil run dry, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Elijah. Now it happened after those things that the son of the woman who owned the house became sick and his sickness was so serious that there was no breath left in him. So she said to Elijah, what have I to do with you, O man of God? Have you come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to kill my son? And he said to her, give me your son. So he took him out of her arms and carried him to the upper room where he was staying and laid him on his own bed. Then he cried out to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, my God, have you also brought tragedy on the widow with whom I lodged by killing her son? And he stretched himself out on the child three times and cried out to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, my God, I pray, let this child's soul come back to him. Then the Lord heard the voice of Elijah and the soul of the child came back to him and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper room into the house and gave him to his mother. And Elijah said, see, your son lives. Then the woman said to Elijah, now by this, I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is the truth. May God bless the reading of his word. Father, as we have gathered here again today to, to dig into your word and to hear from it, to read it, we, we thank you that it indeed is from your mouth that you have given this book and that it is absolute truth and that we can rely upon it and bank not only our, our present lives, but our eternity on the truthfulness of your word. And Father, we pray that you would help equip us, that we might, like Elijah, learn how to approach the calling and gifting that you have given us in our lives, that we may enter rightly and fulfill 
your desire in our lives and bring honor and glory to you. And Lord, if there's anyone here today who doesn't know you as Savior, they, they, they are not yet considered your workmanship, whom you have created in Christ Jesus to do those good works. Lord, we know you have a plan for them. We pray that you would soften their heart, open their minds to understand, and that they would turn to Christ Jesus today and be saved. We just ask these things in the name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So after Solomon, the nation of Israel divided into two kingdoms. The one in the north was called Israel, but it was really two thirds of the territory, 10 of the 12 tribes up in the north. And Judah was in the south. And it was in the north where these things were happening. Jeroboam, the first king of that northern kingdom, did a terrible, terrible thing. He, for his own protection, he decided to create his own system of worship so that the people wouldn't have to go all the way back down to Jerusalem to worship in the real temple. And so he corrupted the worship of the people. He, in, in chapter 12 of 1 Kings tells us all about this. He made two golden calves and he told the people, this is the God that brought you up out of Egypt. This is your God. And he wanted them to worship these golden calves. And he set them up in two different cities. And so you don't have to go down into that other country. Just stay here. And the people went for it. And probably what led to it was because he decided that anyone who wanted to be a priest to worship in this new system could be a part of it. And so you didn't have to be according to God's plan just from the tribe of Levi. You just step up for the job and say, put me in coach. He'll put you in. And he puts it right in the city that you have to go through to go down to the southern kingdom anyway. So you run into all the people going there and here's the peer pressure, right? And, and so there's this new system, the new and improved, you know, and, and so they advertised and persuaded the people to turn away from the Lord purposefully for self-serving and self-motivated reasons corrupted uh, uh, the people's relationship with God and they departed from him. And it was willful rebellion that they did this, right? It, there was, there was, he knew that it wasn't right, but he established that for these people. And all the kings from Jeroboam, that first king, down to the one we're going to talk about today, Ahab, continued in this tradition. And every single time it says they did evil in the sight of the Lord because they followed in the ways of Jeroboam, that son of Nebat, the first king of that northern kingdom of Israel. And it provoked the Lord to anger. You know, Jesus said when speaking of the religious people of his day, that your righteousness needs to be better than those of the scribes and Pharisees because not only were they checked out and veering from God's path, but see, part of the problem was they were convincing others to do the same. And that's what these kings were doing. It was a double sin because they themselves were corrupted in their worship, but they were bringing, influencing everyone else to come along with it. And this is the culture that we see in Elijah's day. So much so that it tells us here in verse 30 that when Ahab began to reign, it says that he did evil in the sight of the Lord, but more than all those who were before him. He took it to a new level. And that's what happens, isn't it? Right. They say that what the parents tolerate in moderation, the children practice in excess. You give someone an inch and they want to take a mile. Right. And our fleshly nature is like that. Go ahead. What was the old Doritos commercial? Eat all you want. We'll make more. Bet you can't eat just one and not want more and more, right? Just try eating one potato chip, one scoop of ice cream. 
you better shut the refrigerator and walk away, right? But that's the way our nature is. It's never satisfied. And so, you know, what suddenly begins as new and exciting, we find the emptiness of it and our soul wants more. And so here's Ahab, you know, all these kings have already done this, but no. Okay. As if verse 31 says, as if it had been a trivial thing for him to continue in these sins. No, he's got to take it to a new level. He takes Jezebel as his wife. Now here, God had already told them not to take wives from these nations, not because God's against other people groups, but because they worshiped foreign gods. He said, they're going to corrupt your relationship with me. And Solomon proved it to be true in his life. And here he's going to do the same thing. He goes to the Sidonians and he marries the daughter of the king of the Sidonians. And he begins to worship Baal himself. Not only that, it says that he set up an altar. Oh, this is a temple of Baal. Oh, that he himself built. So now he's not just going along with what his wife used to practice, but now he's built the temple. He's now created an altar for it. It gets worse. It says then he made a wooden image. Verse 33. They would plant these groves of trees where they would make idols out of those trees even and participate in the practices of that false worship near those idols. And God specifically told them back in Deuteronomy. Hold on. Chapter 16, about how they were not to do that and anger the Lord. But no, Ahab did all of it. And he continued to encourage the people of his day to do the same. Was that the climate of the day? Yeah. Verse 34 tells us that the people were fully rejecting the word of God, right? There was a warning. That God gave Joshua after they had conquered Jericho. You want to read it? Go back to Joshua chapter 6, verse 26. And he said, listen, cursed is the man who tries to rebuild this city. You start setting up the walls, your oldest child is going to die. You get to the point where you're going to close up the gates, your youngest will be taken. And this man experienced that in his own life. He decided to rebuild Jericho. And he laid its foundation with his firstborn son, Abiram, and his youngest son, Segub, when he got to set up the gates, just as the word of the Lord had spoken. And so, my friends, you know, we can't base our thinking on the thinking of the masses. Most of the time, the majority is going in the wrong direction. Some, somewhere, someone has to be the one to put our foot down and say, no, I want to follow God. And unfortunately, the, uh, the Apostle Paul says, all who seek to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Think about our day and age, a willful departure from the word of God, setting up our own practices, violating the order of the Lord. And you can look in the family life, educational realm, business realm. We're just ramping it up for faster and faster departure from God's ways. Suddenly, in the midst of all this, chapter 17, Ahab is in his courts in Samaria in all of his pomp and circumstance. And we read that Elijah the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead comes in and stands in his presence with a message from God. You wonder how someone could come, stand in the presence of the king and say so authoritatively what he says. 
As the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be no dew nor rain these years except at my word. He didn't just say, hey, um, you might want to reconsider. Things might not go so well. This is an authoritative challenge to the king and to his society. Who is this man? What do we know about him? Let's just stop for a second. His name. His name means El, God, Jah, Jehovah. God is Jehovah. Some say it's my God is Jehovah. And it's true either way, right? He knew God. God was his God, but he's telling us who the real God is. It's Jehovah, the God of the Bible. And so God chose a man who knew him to be his representative in his day. His name tells us a little bit about him. It says here that as he steps in, he says, as the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand. And then he goes on with his message. Somehow that. I don't believe that's just meant to be a, uh, you know, a part of his promising that it's true. Hey, listen, you better believe me or else. It's also instructional. And I hope that what you take away from this today is not only seeing Elijah as a good example for us, but an exhortation, a challenge. Because I look at myself. Here's here's what James says. James chapter five. Tells us Elijah was a man with a nature just like ours. You know, sometimes we look at people, we see these uh, 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 full time workers, missionaries, popular and very gifted servants of the Lord. And we somehow think that they're made of a different stuff. I remember being convicted when I was at Bible school of the way that my life had been going and, 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 and what I felt I was feeling like God was leading me into and um, as a direction of life. And I remember one of my friends coming alongside. He's like, Dave, you're too hard on yourself. You know, and, and, and as I tried to explain what God was doing in my heart and just try to encourage him at the same thing, the, the, the Bible says, listen, in view of the mercies of God, offer your bodies, your lives to him as a living sacrifice. It's his. He purchased it. You don't belong to yourself anymore. Just give your all to him. It's your reasonable response. The Bible says he said, oh, no, 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 you know, yeah, you know, you, you, you missionary minded people. You just, I'm not like that. And he just blew me off. He had his plan for his life and he was heading on with it. But we look at men like Elijah and it'd be easy for us to put them in a different category. But the Bible says very clearly he was a man with a nature just like you and just like me. And so the things that God was doing with him, you know, he could do that with you. He could do that with me. If we're willing to go through what Elijah went through. And be fully yielded up to him. And that's what we see with with Elijah. He says, the God before whom I stand. Now, I didn't look. I I, I only looked in two places and and then I went on with the rest of my study. But you think about those who stand before God. Moses was 
the first person that came to mind in Exodus chapter 3. And this is just so profound. I just want to take the detour to, to just read it to you, right? You remember after Moses had uh, his own personal failure, his anger got the best of him and he slew the Egyptian and, and then he had to leave Egypt and he was out there for 40 years tending sheep in the, in the wilderness alone, secluded. But as he's walking through the wilderness on this particular day, it says, Exodus 3, 2, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. And so when Moses looked, behold, the bush was burning with fire, but it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why this bush does not burn up. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. And God said, do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet for the place where you stand is holy ground. This is the beginning of the call of Moses. And where does he find himself? He finds himself standing in the presence of God. And God is challenging him and commissioning him to a life of service to him. And Moses had a problem with that. He had all kinds of legitimate excuses in his eyes. But God said, no, I made you. This is my plan for you. Follow me. Follow me. And so, eventually he does, doesn't he? Well, he goes back and speaks to Pharaoh and, and God uses Moses to lead the nation of Israel out. But notice this. If you recall, after they get out past the Red Sea, the, the uh, Egyptians are destroyed. And now they're in the middle of the wilderness. And... There's problems. People are getting into fights. They're coming to Moses to settle them. And Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, comes to visit him. And in Exodus chapter 18, Jethro is just watching his son-in-law do all this. And he sees the people waiting and waiting and waiting. And he can't get to them all. He says, Moses, what you're doing is not good. You need help. And he gives them some counsel as to how to effectively lead the people. But one of the things, this is what stuck out to me. When Jethro speaking to him, he says, listen to me. Let me give you counsel and God will be with you. Stand before God for the people. So that you may bring the difficulties to God and you shall teach them the statutes and the laws and show them the way in which they must walk and the work that they must do. Then he goes on and tells him how to select the right men to be his assistants. But notice the, the description of what Moses was supposed to be doing. Stand before God for the people. You as a priest go in before the presence of God to minister to him and let him minister to you. You go with there with all of your cares and concerns and burdens for the people around you. Yes. And you pour them all out before God. But God's going to pour into you. And then you turn around and you come back out. Teach the people my statutes. Statutes. Show them the way that they should walk. Live it yourself. And show them the work that they're supposed to do. Moses stood before God. And God used him mightily. And here comes a man out of the seclusion of a deserted place onto the stage of the king of Israel. And he walks in there and says, as the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand, I have a message for you. And brothers and sisters in Christ, we have a message for our day today, but we've got to be ready to do what Moses did. And we've got to be ready to do what Elijah did first and stand before God and get alone with him. 
And until that alone time happens, we're not going to be prepared for the public theater. We've got to have the private world in order first. And that's hard, isn't it? You know, I can't set your alarm for you and ask you to get out of bed early to read God's word. You can't do it for me. We've all got to decide how we're going to live our lives and how we're going to practice standing before God in private so that when God is ready, he can impress upon us. Here is your message for the world in which you live, for the circle of influence that I where I've placed you. It could be your family. It might be your spouse. It might be your parents or your children. It could be your neighbor. It could be a co-worker, a, a, a friend in the playground. A cashier at Publix. They see you come in and out. We don't realize how much they're observing. But here comes Elijah and he speaks to the king. Now, a strange thing happens. Okay, now, first of all, how do we know that he was really doing this? It says, there shall not be dew nor rain except by my word. Where did he get that from? Well, you know, in Deuteronomy, in chapter, is it 10? 11. Need a new set of glasses here. In Deuteronomy 11, God said, when you go into this land, listen, take heed to yourself. If you obey my word, listen, this land is different than Egypt. Egypt had a nice big flowing river. You just had to, to, to carve off little tributaries to come off of it. And it watered the land all year long, right from that river. You didn't have to worry about it. This land is different. It's got mountains and valleys. And the only way this land stays green is by the rain. So if you stay faithful to me, I promise to take care of you and you will have plenty of rain for your crops. But if you decide not to follow my word and you depart, he says, I will withhold the rain and your land will dry up fast. Well, that was 400 plus years before Elijah knew the word of God. He was before God, reading God's word. And as he was reading and as he was going before God with the concerns, he had a passionate desire to see his generation return to God. And so he began to pray, Lord, our people need you. We have departed from your ways. And you said if we depart and we won't come back, that you would stop the rain so that we would have to look to you. And so I believe it seems very clear by the word of God that Elijah was praying that God would withhold the rain. And it came to the point where finally God said, you know what? Okay, I'm going to do it. Go tell Ahab. And so that's why he said, at my word, until the Lord tells me otherwise, and I come back and tell you, not even just the rain, no dew. Sometimes I'm thankful that there's dew in the morning because my sprinklers don't always work like they should. And we go through the dry season and I, at least there was dew this morning. They didn't even have that. God did it. But Elijah announced it because God had been working in his life in private and he told him, now it's time. Here's your job. And he showed up, exit stage right or enter stage right. Now, what else do we learn about this man, Elijah? James tells us he was a man like us. We already said that. It also calls him a righteous man. In James, it says the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And he begins to describe Elijah. Now, he wasn't righteous because he did a lot of good things and and he got his life cleaned up all by himself. No, when the Bible calls someone righteous, it's because they've realized that they're a sinner. And they've accepted God's grace and his forgiveness. 
Was there a substitute sacrifice? In the Old Testament, they had those lambs, temporary, until Jesus himself could come. The Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. And when we believe that promise that God covers or forgives sin based on that substitute for us, God grants us his forgiveness. And Romans says, we are justified, declared righteous before God. And so this righteous man, if a righteous man prays, it avails much. But I would say the tenor of his life tells me that as a Christian, I can trust in Christ as my savior. But if I'm not walking rightly before God. James will also say, you know, first of all, you don't have because you don't ask. But when you're asking for all the wrong reasons, because your life's out of line with God's word, you don't get what you're asking for. So we have to be declared legally righteous before God first. But then as we offer ourselves to God and he works in us, he begins to he begins to wash away the sinful practices of our lives. He he produces the fruit of the spirit in us. And our lives are separate, increasingly separating from a pattern of sin in our lives. And when a believer who walks in righteousness prays, the Bible said it avails much, but not just praying. He was a praying man of a different kind. James 5 says, yes, he was a man with a nature like ours, but he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. Earnestly. That's not a one-time prayer. Passionately pouring out his heart before God for God to move. And God saw his life. I think he was probably fasting. He was turning away from distractions in his life, whether it was food or anything else. Certainly, he wasn't keeping up with the fashion of his day. Coming in in his old hairy garment before the king. He was living a separated life. A righteous man before God. And he prayed earnestly. And we're going to see an example of that in this chapter where he prayed three times. Jesus prayed three times about his burden of going to the cross. Paul prayed three times about the thorn in the flesh. Earnest prayers. And God heard him and availed much. He was a praying man. We already mentioned how he knew God's word. He shared God's heart for his people. We saw that because he wanted to see them turn back to him. And we'll see that in the coming weeks. He was depressed. When the people saw the great event that God did and they still didn't turn back to God like they should. He shared God's heart, but he was also an obedient man, which is what this story shows us back in first Kings 17. Suddenly he gives the message and now God comes to him and says, listen, get away from here and go hide yourself out by this little brook called Cherith in the middle of nowhere. Wait a minute, Lord, I'm just getting started. I just gave one message. Go hide. I didn't write it, but. There's humility in this man. It's not about him. Lord, they don't even know my name yet. But he was obedient. And God said, go hide by this brook. And he says that you can drink from the brook and I've commanded the ravens to feed you. Imagine that. So. Verse five says he went. And did according to the word of the Lord. So he goes down there to this brook and he was drinking the water from the brook and the ravens were bringing him bread and meat in the morning, bread and meat in the evening. But then after time, huh, the brook dries up. 
Go figure, right? There's no rain. What's he going to do? Well, Lord, you sent me here. Grumble, 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 grumble. That's one option. I know I practiced that one too many times. You know, did, did anyone think of Abraham when you read this passage? Abraham's commanded by God to leave Ur and he goes into Canaan and no sooner has he planted himself there. Chapter 12, chapter 13, there's a famine. Sad story. Great man of faith. We read about him in Hebrews chapter 11. Here's the same man who believed God. You said that my son, he's the one through the promises are going to come. You're telling me to sacrifice him on an altar. Okay. Somehow you're going to raise him from the dead. Boy, that's pretty strong faith. Raise the one from the dead. Because you said he's the one. Maybe his faith grew by that point because of what happened in, Hebrew, in, in, in Genesis 13. But the famine comes and the first thing it says he does is he hightails it out of there to go somewhere else to look for food for himself. Doesn't say he prayed. Doesn't say God told him. He just goes. And it ends terribly for him. He ends up lying about his wife. And having a bad testimony to the people of the area. When we depart from God's will. Because we're not checking in with him like we should. doesn't go well. The Bible says we reap what we sow. We sow to the flesh, we're going to reap corruption. Sow to the spirit, we'll reap eternal life. So there's a pattern here for us. The command of the Lord came, go hide. But he also had a promise. I'll take care of you. I've commanded the ravens. But the response was necessary, right? Elijah chose to go and do what God said. But there was a test. This is the part where I think I fail the most. Right? I hear the word of the Lord. My heart says, yes, Lord. Let's do and, and I t- start taking that step and the challenge comes. Right? I still remember the day I decided I'm going to start reading my Bible because I, I was more awake at night than in the, in the morning. And I decided to start reading my Bible at night. I, I, I stopped my, my homework because I had tons of it. And I said, I'm going to start reading my Bible. And I think the first three days in a row, my cat, which never gave me the time of day, came up, jumped on my desk and sat on my Bible. (laughs) Purring. But, you know, you decide to obey God. What's he been challenging you to do different? To pray more? To witness more? To handle your finances more responsibly? And suddenly you decide, Lord, we're going to do this. And the test comes. And Elijah faced the test. The brook dried up. But he waited on the Lord. And the Lord finally said, okay. Arise and go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. I've commanded a widow there to provide for you. So now he's got to get up and move, but he's moving at God's direction. And he goes to another secluded place, Jezebel's country. Love that irony, don't you? And he goes there and sure enough, this woman provides for him. Two times we see this pattern. God gives the command and the promise and Elijah obeyed. And then there were challenges, but he was faithful. He was faithful through those things. He tested God and proved God. And that was the last point I want to make about him. He was not only obedient, he confronted King Ahab. He went to the brook Cherith. He waited on God and God provided for him. But then he had to leave there and go to Zarephath. He was an obedient man. But he was also trusting and faithful to God. And so he trusted God in the midst of that dried up land. But you know... 
it's not in my notes, but what are you praying to God for in your life and in this country? What if, in the midst of all of our prayers for revival, this country goes financially bankrupt? All your bank account is gone. You lose your house because your money's no good. Or they do like they did in Greece and they take the money right out of your bank account overnight. You can't do anything about it. Are we willing to stand with God and go through the drought with the disobedient, unbelieving people around us? And still have compassion on them and have a right response to the Lord. Elijah was trusting of his God. God said, I've commanded the ravens to feed you. Will you trust me out there not knowing where it's going to come from? When I send you to somebody who, who's suspicious of the Israelites already. He walks up to this woman. Asks for some, asks for some water, asks for some bread. She's like, as the Lord, your God lives. She knew it wasn't her God. This is some guy from Israel and, and he's a servant of this Israelite God. And he's asking me to do this for him. But she acknowledges we're about to die here. Maybe they'd heard that it was Elijah's God that had stopped the rain. Maybe they heard that it was him that even made the pronouncement. I'm impressed that she was even going to get him something to eat. But God had commanded her. God was moving in her heart. But notice the pattern. She knew she was going to die. It's my last piece of bread. It's all I've got, but it's not enough to sustain me. We're going to eat it. And she was resigned to die. Isn't that sad? My friends, there are people spiritually like that all around us. They realize that they don't have a relationship with God. They realize that they don't have the hope of eternal life. And they don't know where to find it. And they're looking at you and they're looking at me. And they're seeing something going on there. But it doesn't make any sense to them. And they're waiting. Praise God, Elijah was there. And he said to her, do not fear. God's got a message for you. God said that if you will trust him now, he will keep you alive. He will do what you cannot do for yourself. Do you hear the gospel of Jesus Christ coming out here? We are desperately lost. There's no hope of life with God forever because of our sin. But God has sent a message. Trust in Jesus. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. As many as receive him, to them he gives the right to become children of God, to those who believe on his name. He said, the Lord made a promise that the flower would not run out. He would sustain them through the drought. And so she went, verse 15, and she did according to the word of Elijah and her household. They had the food they needed. And Elijah stayed with them. Now, we already read it, how the woman's child died. I just wanted to point out this about his prayer life. He cried out to the Lord when that child was brought to him. And twice it says he cried out to the Lord. Verse 20 and verse 21. Remember what it said in James? He prayed earnestly. Can you notice this? He falls down. Verse 21 stretches himself out on the bed, on the child where the child was. And he cries out to the Lord. There's there's a a, a desperation of heart that God hear him. 
And it wasn't enough that he just prayed once. He prayed three separate times, calling out to the Lord to help. What if he had given up after the second? But he didn't. He not only prayed earnestly, but he prayed expectantly. And we'll see this in the next chapter when, or, uh, uh, when God commands him to go pray for the rain. Seven times he sends out his servant. Is, is a cloud there yet? Nope. Oh, okay, let's keep praying. Go check again. You know, George Mueller tells the story of, of when he was traveling through a channel and he, he had, a, he had a, an appointment he was supposed to preach at. And, and there was a thick fog and the, the, the captain of the ship that he was on stopped because he didn't want to run into anything. And so George Mueller was a little concerned. And so he went to see the captain of the ship and uh, the captain claimed to be a believer. And so he said, can I pray with you? And what else is he going to do? Right. So he said, OK, let's pray. So George Mueller starts first. And uh, he just says, Lord, you know, I got this appointment. Please lift this fog so we can get through and be on time. That was his prayer. And then he stopped, said amen, and the captain was going to pray. And he was about to start. And he said, listen, don't. First of all, you don't believe that the Lord's going to do it. And secondly, I believe the Lord already has. And they went out the door. The fog was gone. <laughs> he prayed expectantly. And you read his testimony and 50,000 prayers, I think it is, were answered in his lifetime, recorded in his diary. He prayed expectantly. I love this. My kids love to read the story of the time that they had no food and they bring out the hundreds of kids they had in the orphanage and they didn't know what to feed them. He just said, thank the Lord for what he's going to provide. Turns out that the baker couldn't sleep in the middle of the night and the Lord put it on his heart to bake bread for all the kids. So after they're given thanks and they're, I don't know whether they were distributed, I don't know what they were doing, but suddenly the knock comes on the door and the baker arrives with all the bread. While that's happening, another knock comes on the door. The milkman's wheel broke on his wagon and he knew his milk would spoil if he waited till the repair guy got there and he could get back on his. So what does he do? He drags it all in and says, can you guys use some milk? Prayer after prayer, God providing miraculously at times. But when when George Mueller prayed, he not only prayed earnestly, but he prayed expectantly like Elijah did. And James says it was effectual. It worked. Does prayer really work? Yes. Not that there's something special about prayer, but you know what? There's something really special about the God we pray to if we really pray. Not just saying the words that we're supposed to say. Sometimes we corrupt new believers by teaching them to say weird things that aren't natural to sound spiritual when God just wants us to talk to Him. Trust Him. Follow Him. And watch Him work. So what is God calling you to? I pray that God would help you to enter stage right. Lord, here we are. We're just ordinary people. Ordinary people who have sinned against you. And yet somehow you've chosen to love us anyway. And you desire to do a miracle work in our lives. To, to remove the debt of our sin. Not because of anything we do but because of what Jesus did when he died on the cross to take our place. And simply by trusting in him and the work that he did, you promised to put his perfect record upon our, us and to put our sinful record upon him on the cross and cancel out, fully pay that debt so that we can draw close to you, actually stand in your presence to get to know you, to live life with you 
and to spend forever with you. And while we're here, to know that we are your workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. What you've already prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Father, I pray for the brothers and sisters in Christ who are here with us today. Lord, that you would help us to discover those gifts, to develop them, to commit our lives fully to you that, that we might be like Elijah's and like Moses's that you can work through in in our day and age. And Lord, if there is someone here who doesn't know you as Savior, Father, would you just call them to yourself today? Help us to introduce them to you. Give them the courage to come talk to someone. Say, how can I know this Jesus you've been talking about and have everlasting life? We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you.